forgot to mention earlier, and that, if you all know Mr. Walt Light, he has got an infection in his finger. Uh, believe it or not, he got pricked by a thorn this week, and it has led to a staph infection, and he's at St. Mary's Hospital. I just talked to him right before the service. And uh, anyhow, just keep him in your prayers. He said it feels like a toothache with a heartbeat. So um, he is uh, not a happy camper, but, you know, knowing he's where he needs to be. So um, we're going to continue today in our series uh, called God Is, and we're taking a look at the attributes of God. And this morning we're looking at God is sovereign. That is the sovereignty of God. Now that word sovereign means that God is the supreme ruler of the entire universe. That's what sovereignty means there, that God has the right to do whatever he chooses whenever he chooses to do it, to whomever he chooses to do it, and however he pleases. That God has the final say in all matters of the universe. And in addition to that, it also means that God is answerable to no one. That is, that God is accountable to no one. That God doesn't have to answer to anybody for the decisions that he makes or for the things that he does or decides not to do in the terms of running his universe. And that's the topic that we want to cover today, that God is sovereign. That is, that God is in complete control of everything that happens in our world. Our passage today comes from Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. If you have your Bibles, you can flip over there, Philippians chapter 1. And let me give you just a little bit of background here to this text. This is a letter written by the Apostle Paul from Rome. He's in chains. He's in prison in Rome under house arrest. This has been a long process. We'll talk about that here in just a minute. And uh, he's writing this letter to the Philippians to thank them for their gift that they've given him to help him pay for his expenses while he's been under house arrest uh, waiting for his trial before Caesar. Um, there's a map here I've got of the church at Philippi. Uh, the church sits at the northern tip of the Aegean Sea, and it's about four, two miles, maybe four miles, I can't remember exactly, inland from the Aegean Sea, from the coastline. And then there's a picture that we have here of some of the ancient ruins of Philippi. And one of the wonderful um, things about archaeology uh, and the Bible is that every time these folks called the archaeologists dig something up out of the ground and find another site like this, it just confirms that everything in the Bible is true. And so that's one of the things I love about archaeology and I love about uh, those sciences is that they are just going out and showing, hey, look, how, re how reliable the Bible is. The places, the people, the times, the dates, all the things that the Bible talks about are indeed exactly as, uh, that there's a written record all through history confirming the Bible's truthfulness. Um, so today we're going to take a look at how the sovereignty of God intersects with the life of the Apostle Paul, and then we'll get to the question that we ask each week about how, what difference all this makes to your life and to mine. Um, so let's uh, stand and read together Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. I was teaching my class this past Tuesday night. We're actually starting to teach online. We've got a little FaceTime thing going on where I sit with them for two hours, and they're at their house, and I'm at my house. It's kind of a strange thing that I'm start, still trying to get used to. And some of the students were making some statements about the Scripture and what the Scripture represents. And so I reminded them, hey, you know what my church does every single Sunday morning? We stand up for the reading of God's Word, and we do that to remind ourselves that this is where truth comes from, that God gives us His truth. We don't have to wonder what it is, rather that He wrote it down, and that that truth exists as the ultimate authority for you and I. Not what people say on Facebook, not people hear what we hear on the radio, not what people say on TV, but what God wrote down. And it's right there for us as a written record. So let's stand and read together Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God 
more courageously and fearlessly. You may be seated. All right, so let's uh, kind of talk about this for a little bit. Uh, you say, Gordon, I got a question for you right out of the gate. Okay, what's your question? Your question is, hey, how come the Apostle Paul's in jail? Did he do something wrong? Did he do something to violate some law? And is that why he's in jail? Well, the quick answer to that is no. Paul is actually a political prisoner. He didn't violate any laws. He didn't do anything wrong. He's in jail because there's a group of Jewish leaders back in Jerusalem who did not like the Apostle Paul going around and talking about, teaching about the Lord Jesus. And because of that, they trumped up some charges against him, and they had him thrown in jail with an attempt and a hope that one day the Apostle Paul would be executed. But much to their chagrin, they... Um, it, things didn't process as quickly as they hoped that they would. And there was two reasons why this process took a little bit longer than what they expected. The first reason was that Paul was a Roman citizen. And so as a Roman citizen, that means that anywhere in the Roman Empire, he is able to have the full process of jurisprudence. He's able to have the full process, due process under the law. Um, they couldn't just trump up charges, have a quick trial, and then go outside and execute him. He had to go through the full process. And the other thing is that the charges that they brought against the Apostle Paul were very flimsy. And so every time Paul would go to the lower court of appeals, he would, they would see him, they'd hear his trial, and they'd say, you know what, there's not enough here for us to make a decision on. And so they'd send him up to the next court, and then the next court. And this just keeps going on, and it takes two years for them finally to get to a place where the Apostle Paul says, hey, look, as a Roman citizen, I have the right to make my appeal to Caesar himself, for Caesar himself to hear my trial, because I'm not getting justice in these courts. And so he makes his appeal to Caesar. So for two years, they get to that point. And so then for two more years, the Apostle Paul is in jail in Rome, awaiting his trial before Caesar. So four years all total, the Apostle Paul is in jail, sleeping on a cold, dingy dungeon floor with iron around his hands and wrists. And the men that, that put the Apostle Paul here were these Jewish leaders, and they had it out for him. That's why the Apostle Paul was in this situation. These were men who were willing to lie about Paul, who schemed against Paul, who rejoiced at every setback that Paul had, men who for four years have had their freedom while Paul has had his chains, men for four years who had gone home to their families, who had been surrounded by their loved ones, who had been able to go out with freedom and interact in the public while the Apostle Paul had his chains and was, was separated from his loved ones. I think you get my point. The enemies of the Apostle Paul caused him much trial and tribulation. They ruined the Apostle Paul's life, at least we might think so. But the Apostle Paul has a very different perspective of his chains. The Apostle Paul has a very different perspective of his situation. Look at, we just read it a few moments ago, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 12. He says, now I want you to know, my Christian brothers, that what has happened to me has really put a damper on the gospel. That's not what it says, is it? All right, y'all picked up on that. I'm glad you're listening this morning. That's not what it says. And it didn't, he didn't say, you know what, I want you to know that what happened to me has really caused me to be depressed. It might have been a little bit, but that's not what he says. What the Apostle Paul says is that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. And we say to ourselves, how? How is that possible? How is the Apostle Paul, how is the gospel being advanced by him being in jail? He can't go out and preach. He can't go out and start new churches. What's he talking about? that he's in jail and it served to advance the gospel. Well, don't miss this. The Apostle Paul delights in his imprisonment, not because Paul's primary concern in life was his creature comforts, not because the Apostle Paul's primary concern in life was for his personal liberty and for his inalienable rights, 
Paul's primary concern with his life and the energy of his life was such that the gospel would be advanced. And if the gospel was advanced, then Paul was happy. Paul was glad for whatever may come his way. Paul's primary concern in life was for the advancement of the gospel. First and foremost, for other people to come to Christ, for other people to make it to heaven, he cared more about that than he cared about his own creature comforts. He goes on to give us some of the details of just in what ways the gospel was advanced. He says in verse 14, Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and more fearlessly. So Paul says, because they saw me in jail as a political prisoner, which is really what he was, they were emboldened to go out and share Jesus with other people because they saw, hey, look, Paul's suffering and he's willing to suffer for the gospel. You know what? I'll put myself out there too. And they were going out and sharing the gospel with people. But there's another reason, a second reason why Paul says that all this seeming bad stuff that's been happening to him has really been a blessing, how it's really been a good outcome. And he says, we skipped it, verse 13, he says, as a result of all this, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that's here in Rome alongside me that I am in chains for Christ. Now, what the, he refers to here as the palace guard, we need to be clear that this is amongst the Romans, this is what's called the Praetorian Guard, the Praetorian Guard. This was the elite regiment within the whole Roman Empire, and they were responsible for guarding uh, they were started back in 31 BC by Caesar Augustus, and their, their design, original design was to guard the emperor and to guard his family. But this, they've become even more uh, advanced, even more uh, influential than that, to the point that um, anybody who was an emperor wanted to have this Praetorian Guard in their back pocket because they could make or break an emperor. And they were the most privileged group in the Roman Empire. Sandra Bingham, in her book, The Praetorian Guard, said, and I quote, the Praetorian Guard became the power behind the throne with the ability to make or break an emperor. And I already said that to you, so I'm just repeating it again for a second time. But in any case, there's my end of quote. Y'all didn't follow along with that, but maybe listen to the sermon on the tape afterwards. Maybe you'll figure it out. And so Paul tells us right here in Philippians that through his imprisonment, every one of these guards heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you say, well, how did that happen? Well, think about it for just a minute. Part of the duties of a Praetorian guard is to guard prisoners. And these prisoners that they were guarding were ones who had made an appeal to be heard by Caesar. And so Paul is one of these people. He's under house arrest in Rome. He's awaiting his trial. Caesar's a really busy guy. It takes two years to get heard by Caesar. But nevertheless, um, he finally gets his day, which means, think about this for just a minute. Paul is chained to a Roman Praetorian guard for eight hours a day, three shifts a day, 24-7, 365. Do you think, could you imagine being chained to the Apostle Paul for eight hours a day? He's got nobody come by to visit him. You're it, right? He's got uh, nobody else around to preach to. You're it, right? And, uh, And you're there for eight hours a day. I mean, do you suppose that these guys heard the Apostle Paul shared the gospel with them. I imagine that he probably got an earful. I'd have learned a whole lot about Judaism. They probably knew how to read Hebrew by the time the whole thing was done. Um, this is how so many people uh, amongst the Praetorian Guard heard about Christ, learned about Christ, gave their lives to Christ. Even people within the emperor's household himself um, heard about the Lord Jesus. You say, how do you know that people within the emperor's house heard about Jesus? Well, listen to what Paul says a little bit later in the letter. He says, Philippians 
chapter 4 and verse 22, all the believers in Rome send you greetings, especially those, all the believers send you greetings in Philippi, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. How cool is that? The Apostle Paul, is he's ecstatic over the fact that he's been in chains. How else was the gospel going to get to Caesar's own family, to his children and his grandchildren? And Christ has been shared with them, and they have become believers. Who would have thought that this could happen? But the Apostle Paul is just, he's doing mental, what do you call those things when you like cartwheels? He's doing cartwheels, right? He's having such a great time with all this, and he's just so excited because the gospel's being advanced into and a corner of the world that you would have thought was totally closed to people ever hearing about Jesus. But the Apostle Paul says, hey, look, the gospels have been advanced. And so what happened was God took the evil that these leaders had intended to harm Paul, and God flipped it and turned it into a good outcome. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that what God does? God took the evil that these people had intended Paul and the gospel and God flipped it so that it turned into a good outcome. Now, before we move on, I want to make some, something very clear. We talk about God's sovereignty. We talk about him being in control of all things in the universe. Um, just to what extent is God in control? And those that were in our adult Sunday school class this morning, they learned that God is in control of the physical universe, that God is in control of the hearts of people, uh, that God even has, as the scriptures say, he holds the heart of the king in his hand. God's in control of all the creatures of the world. Uh, He shuts the mouths of lions, right? God is in great, tremendous amount of control. Um, But there's an extreme theological position uh, that when you get to talk about the sovereignty of God that says something a little bit, that I'm uncomfortable with and that I don't think the scriptures um, agree with. Um, And that theological position is that God predetermines everything. I was listening to a preacher this past week who said, even when you reach in to pick out your Scrabble pieces, God not only knows what Scrabble pieces are going to be, but God has predetermined which Scrabble pieces you're going to get. And there's a problem with that. And the problem with it comes from Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. And it says, for all have sinned, and fallen short of the glory of God. Because see, if God predetermines everything that we do, then where's man's free will? Where's your thoughts, your opinions, your decision to choose him, to reject him, whatever? And see, the Bible says that we are the ones who are responsible for our actions. So it says all of us have sinned. Not that God has predetermined that and God causes us to sin, that God, in a sense, sins. It says that we have sinned, not that God has sinned that we have sinned, and because of that, we are responsible. We have fallen short of the glory of God. See, the, God is not the author of all the bad stuff that happens. Sometimes the bad stuff that happens is the result of sin in our world. Sometimes the bad stuff that happens is the result of the fact that we live in a fallen world where cancer happens, where heart disease happens. And what God does is he comes in when those bad things happens, and he flips it to present a good outcome that's what god does he's a redeeming he takes the bad and he redeems it and turns it into something beautiful that's what god does romans chapter 5 and verse 8 confirms this truth it says god works through all things the good and the bad and the ugly and he works through all things for the good of those who love him do you see that in paul's story 
right? Those that intended him harm, God flipped it and made it a good outcome. God took the hatred that those Jewish leaders had for Paul and Paul's imprisonment, and God flipped it so that Paul could share Jesus with the Praetorian Guard, and then people from Caesar's own household would come to Christ. I mean, again, there was no likely way that that would have ever happened, but that God was in control. Um, God works through all things for the good of those who love him. Okay, well, that's our treatment of this topic today that gives you some idea of what the sovereignty of God is. You see God's control of things working, that God's working through both the good and the bad and bringing that uh, to his purposes and his plans for our lives. All right, so that means it's time for us to ask the most important question. You know what that question is? What difference does all this make to my life, right? You say, Gordon, that's really good for the Apostle Paul, but I mean, I'm not in jail. I'm going to get in my car. I'm going to drive home. And I mean, I can't relate to where the Apostle Paul is coming from, can I? What difference does any of this make to me? Well, that's a really good question. Let's talk about that. You know, there's another story in the Bible that's very similar to Paul's, and it comes from the Old Testament. A guy named Joseph. You all know Joseph from the Old Testament, the book of Genesis. And Joseph was the guy that he had the coat of many colors, and his brothers, his older brothers, didn't like him. And so they took his coat from him, and they put blood on it, and they went home and told his dad that he had been attacked by a lion and that Joseph was dead. Well, they had thrown him in a well. The next day, somebody comes along, and they... Uh, sell him out of the well into slavery at the Potiphar's house, and then he ends up in Potiphar's house as a slave, and he works his way up to Potiphar's house, and then some more bad stuff happens. He ends up in jail, and he's in jail for about 12 years, and uh, and he interprets the dream of, of the king of, of Egypt, of the pharaoh, and he eventually becomes the second in charge. And he, so he goes from being a guy in a well to being the second in charge of the Egyptian empire to being the prime minister of Egypt. And uh, God is elevated into that role, and his brothers come back years, I mean, this is decades later, and they meet their brother, and they realize who their brother is, and they're scared to death of their brother. They're scared to death that he's going to bring revenge on them for this terrible thing that they had done to him all those years ago. I love what Joseph said. Here's what Joseph said, Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. He said, you know what, guys? You intended to harm me. That's what your intention was. But God flipped it. And God intended it for good. God overruled your evil act. God overruled it and gave it a good outcome. That's what God does. Now, do you suppose that in both Paul and Joseph's case, there were some cold nights in the prison cell when they were wondering, God, why is this happening to me? God, what's going on here? God, are you sure you're in control? God, what's the purpose of all this? I mean, all I'm feeling right now is the harm. All I'm feeling right now is the, the discomfort and the suffering. I don't see a good outcome. I don't see it yet. God, are you sure you're in control? Don't you suppose they asked that question? Jesus asked that question. Father, let this cup pass from me but then the lord jesus concluded as paul concluded as joseph concluded as daniel and the lion's den concluded as david concluded after seven years of running around with saul chasing him as moses concluded after 40 years of living on the backside of the desert as elijah concluded after hiding from king ahab for two years as jeremiah concluded while he was down there in the well that god had a purpose for their suffering god had a plan 
for what they were going through. And they said, God, I don't understand this. I don't particularly like what's happening to me right now. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Because God, you are in control. And I know your promise that you're going to flip this into a good outcome. The Lord Jesus, as well as these great men and women of the Bible, didn't always understand why what was happening was happening. But they believed that God had a plan for it. And they believed in the sovereignty of God, that God was in control, and that he was working through all things for their good. You know, I ran across a verse this past week that's brought a lot of comfort to me. Psalm chapter 46 and verse 10, you may be familiar with it. It says, be still and know that I am God. And that statement has been hanging in my heart all week. Um, you know, I've had some stuff in the last, I don't know, couple months. It's just been like a head scratcher for me. God, what's, what's going on here? What are you doing? Why are you not bringing the help that we've been praying for? Why are you not interceding the way I want for you to? And the Lord says to me through this verse, Hey, Gordon, be still. Be still. I know you're not good at it, but be still and know that I am God. I love that statement, don't you? I love what that statement communicates from the word of God. Friends, this is the message that I'm trying to get across to us today, that God in his sovereignty knew all about what was going to happen to the Apostle Paul. He knew all about what was going to happen to Joseph. He knew all about what was going to happen to Gordon Griffin and the things that you and I would go through in our lives. He knew all about it, and God has it in his hands. He is completely in control. I'd like to take just a few moments now, if you would, to just bow our heads and close our eyes. I'm going to invite Jason to come up and ask him to play for a little bit. And with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I want for us to acknowledge that there are some things in our lives that, you know, we really wish the Lord would change. There's some things in our lives that maybe we don't understand. Some sources of pain. Some sources of fear. Some stuff that's perhaps producing anxiety. Maybe it's an issue with your child. Maybe it's an issue with a grandchild, with health. Maybe it's a financial concern that you have. Maybe you've been trying to have a baby and the Lord hasn't seen fit for that to happen yet. Whatever the concern, whatever the cause of fear, of anxiety, I want for you this morning to say, Lord, I don't understand. But I know that you're in control. I know, Lord, what you do. You're the God who redeems our brokenness. You're the God who flips what maybe someone intended for harm to become a good outcome. Lord Jesus, we give you that stuff this morning. We set it before you. We know you're the God who sees the end from the beginning and that you're working in our lives. We thank you for that. Sometimes along the way, though, Lord, it's 
tough to trust you. It's tough to keep having faith, keep hoping. But Lord, we just want to reaffirm this morning your words to us. That sometimes we just need to be still and know. Lord, plant that in our heart this week. Let your word give us peace. We love you, Lord Jesus. As we come to this table now to celebrate your broken body and your shed blood, we thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness, for your obedience. In the quietness of this time of communion, Continue to minister to our hearts. Be our peace. Be our sufficiency. We thank you, Lord. We love you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.